All right, Kiss Army. You wanted the best. You got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcasting. Welcome to the newest podcast. I am Ken Mills, and always we are joined by... Gary Schaller. And how are you doing, Gary? You know, I'm doing great. Uh, busy as busy as all get out, but um, hanging in there and having a good time. I didn't know. How about you? Uh, doing well, yeah. doing well. <clears throat> We've been busy. Uh, I know it may seem like there's been a lull between shows, but uh, we're going to hit you with a couple right in a row, so here we are. Right on. Uh, the only reason there's been a lull between shows is because Ken has been working on his makeup design. Yes, I have been. Right, right. He I'm had to the, figure out something uh, that would look good with with the beard, basically, right? Yeah. What? Well, what should I be? I I, I liked your idea for the um, the cocktail waitress. I thought was like a really cool persona. Yeah, but uh, how you know how do how do you make that into makeup anyway? Ken, you recently sat down with Jean Beauvoir, which is awesome because that guy co-wrote and played on a lot of Kiss songs that uh, people like myself who grew up in the 80s with Kiss, right? We, we love a lot of those songs, and he was Absolutely. a part of that. Very much so. And yeah. he's going to take us uh, behind the scenes a little bit. And he also has something for free for anybody who wants. All you have to do is go to the link provided in our show notes, and you can download a five-song EP, and it is for free. All you have to do is sign up, give them your email or an email address, and you can download some tracks. One of them written by some guy named Stanley Harvey Eisen. Oh, wait, Paul Stanley. Nice, dude. That's so, awesome. We're also going to play part of that during this episode. So Paul Stanley brought us something for free. How could you not download it? There you go. Right? That's so pretty cool. So go to the link provided in our show notes. And thanks Sign to Jean Beauvoir for that up. hookup, right? Yeah, exactly. He just wants to be able to send you his info and let you know what's going on with him at all points. So awesome. here's, here's part one of that interview. Hi, I'm Jean Beauvoir. As you may know, I was originally in the Plasmatics. I've made several solo records, one being Drums Along the Mohawk, which featured the title track for Stallone's Cobra film, Feel the Heat. I've written songs for Kiss and Paul Stanley separately, produced and all with the Ramones, John Waite, the Pretenders, Debbie Harry, and many other great artists throughout my career. I had the group Voodoo X, and I'm still quite active with Crown of Thorns. I realize that a lot of you who may be fans of one or more of my projects may not be familiar with other aspects of my career. So I felt it was a good idea to offer a five free song download to give a small taste of different things that I've done. Download these tracks and join my mailing list. This way I can keep you in the loop and let you know uh, about my upcoming projects and things that are going on. You can go to my website, www.jeanbeauvoir.com, and there'll be a download link, and you can download it. And Rock on. Okay, now just to make sure, uh, how do you pronounce your name again? Because I, some Kiss fan out in Des Moines, Iowa, is going to, I'm going to get email from him saying you, you goofed up. Okay, it's Jean Beauvoir. Okay, even though I practiced that yesterday, I'm, you know, Jean Beauvoir. Yeah, Jean. It's just Jean, you know. So, so it's like Jean, but with a soft J is what most people say. Jean. For for anybody who's a Kiss fan, you, you must know some of his work and a little bit about him. And we're gonna get into his story, his life, and what he's doing now. Welcome to the podcast, Jean. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. I want to go back to the your your earliest musical memory. Because uh, not only did you get a chance to work with Kiss, but you were a Kiss fan. But uh, I don't know if your earliest musical memory involves Kiss or, or, or who it was. Could you tell us who that was? Well, yeah, it definitely involves Kiss. But I started before that um, because um, I actually started listening to you know Rod Stewart, Zeppelin, Beatles, Stones, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, I lived way out in Long Island. Um, that's kind of where I, I started my whole 
rock and roll thing. Um, I was born in Chicago. We moved to Queens for a short stint. And, you know, being a Haitian kid in Queens, it just didn't, my father didn't feel that was really the right place for us. Um, so basically we ended up moving way out on Long Island, believe it or not. <laughs> I was like probably the only black kid within 10 miles. So everybody was like listening to Steely Dan and, <laughs> and all kinds of things and Led Zeppelin and, and it was a great education. And that's, um, that's kind of what I started listening to, hanging out, you know, kids and listening to this great music. And that's what kind of got me into rock and roll. What was that 145 or one single or song that made you like go, yes, this is it? The one that like supercharged you? Oh God, you're asking me to remember something a long, long time ago. Um, like, like for me, Day Tripper. Day Tripper was one of those songs that I gotta say, that was one of the 45s. I remember that. That's right. I remember that. Um, I don't know if it was really one. I think it was, uh, a combination of things, but I think that groups like Led Zeppelin and then Kiss were groups that really made me feel like this is what I want to do, mm-hmm. just because of the the fantasy aspect of of just the whole lifestyle and and rock. And of course, I already felt it when you used to read about Zeppelin and this and the Jets and all the rest of that stuff. But then when I saw Kiss <laughs> the first time, I really knew. But already I knew I wanted to do rock and roll. But that was that really sealed the deal for me. So what was your first uh, or earliest memory of Kiss or seeing Kiss? Was it a magazine? What was it? It was um, magazines at the beginning. And you know how it is in school when you're young. It's junior high school early because I probably was around 13, 14. And everybody was, you know, talking about Kiss and, oh, God, did you see this new group? Man, they're wild and this and that. So, of course, you get introduced that way. But my Uh first concert was 1975, I believe, Nassau Coliseum. So how long would it say that you saw, like, a picture? Like, was it Cream Magazine, or what was it? It might have been Cream. Um, you've got to remember, I'm not a kid anymore, so I remember all these things in detail. <laughs> it's not easy, mm-hmm. you know. But um, it, it probably was something like Cream. I remember Cream very well. And so then you saw them in 75 at the Nassau Coliseum. What was that like? It just blew my mind. It was just you know, bigger than life and just the makeup, everything else that they had going on. I just said, this this is what it's all about. And I came from a pretty conservative family. You know, my parents are Haitian. My father was an engineer. My mom was an assistant dean of a medical school. And the last thing they wanted me doing was, you know, playing music. I mean, mm-hmm. they encouraged it at the beginning because they felt it was a kind of fun hobby. But um the last thing they would ever expect me to be doing is, is rock and roll and Mohawk and, and where I ended up going with my life, you know. Mm-hmm. You were talking about your conservative family. What did they do when you, like, pulled that Kiss poster out and stuck it on your wall? Was there one? Was, was there that moment? <laughs> there definitely was. I actually had um, a grandmother that used to spend a lot of time with us from Haiti. And my family is conservative in one way, but at the same time, I, you know, Haiti has a voodoo background and from my, mm-hmm. my father's side, there's a whole, you know, my uncle is a big voodoo priest and, you know, so we've got that aspect of things. So my grandmother saw that poster on the wall and she actually was convinced that Jean was a devil. She wouldn't, she wouldn't come in the room. She'd say that. So, so, so she would actually not come into the room. Yeah. She says that Jean is a, is a devil spirit. You, you, you shouldn't have that on your wall. That, that's gotta go. That's how she wow. put it. That's a trip. That's a trip. Now, um, they they let you go to the show. Uh, what can you tell us about that concert? It was, um, let me see if I can remember. Well, I just remember that it was just a crazy show. Just as soon as they came out with the makeup and everything else and just the stage antics and everything else, it's just, it was bigger than life. It was, uh, you know, I've always liked fantasy mm-hmm. ever since I was, you know, younger than that. I liked things that were bigger than life. And um, that was definitely exactly that. And, um, you know, it was, it was what I needed to see in my life at that point to know that, you know, I want to go, I want to play rock and roll for the rest of my life. So let's let's go back to that time. Uh, it says in your biography that you actually wound up working with Chuck Berry and Gary U.S. Bond. How does a kid your age at that time, what were you, 15, 16, 17? How, how, how old were you? Before that, I actually... I started, I mean, kids, I was already playing music. So um, let's say at 
seventh grade, so I was like 13, I started in junior high school rock band. Well, before that, I even started playing because, you know, I was playing instruments in school, saxophone, et cetera. They had a music program in school that started very young. Mm-hmm. So at 13, I was doing that, and I started playing drums. And I had a teacher in the school that had opened for The Who at one time in his life, and he was a rock and roll fanatic, and he had this idea that we should start a junior high school rock band. And wow. um, I was so into it that um, him and I did it together. So we started actually recruiting and having auditions, and we'd have different kids. You know, you'd have five lead singers that would rotate and different drummers, different guitar players. And we started this at 13. Um, the band became pretty popular. The kids dug it, you know, and so we played all the dances, all the school events and everything else. And then from there, actually, was it the summer of 14, I took the band and started playing some local clubs. Um, believe it or not, at that point, I already had a little mustache and everybody's trying to grow some <laughs> facial hair and stuff. So you actually looked older then than I probably did 20 years later. So um, a manager came into one of the shows, a guy named John Apostle, and he managed Gary U.S. Bonds and um, some other, other artists. He came in and he said, listen, um, we're looking for a band to go out on tour with Gary. Just uh, Are you into it? He said, how old are you? I said, I'm 17, going to be 18. He said, okay, um, well, meet us at Gary's house on Saturday, and if he digs you, you know, you guys are in. I actually went down there, met Gary. Gary, he said, okay, listen, we played with them. He said, great, I don't rehearse. I don't do anything. It's your thing. You're the musical director. You put the whole thing together and meet me in Sarasota, Florida <laughs> on this date and know these songs, and that's that. You're on your own. And you didn't even have a driver's license or anything. No. So I had one other guy that joined the band that was actually older, even though I still did some driving, I hate to say it. um, Right. uh, Don't do this at home, kids. Exactly. Don't. That's right. But um, And then we headed down. It was our first experience. I think it was some Holiday Inn or something in Sarasota, you know, and um, my band would get to play. It was a band called Topaz. We got to play a couple of sets on our own, and then he'd come on and do his two sets. And it was a great experience. And then from there, I ended up doing more shows with him throughout that summer. Then he found out I was underage, came into my room one day, said, listen, he used to call me Boo Boo. He said, Boo Boo, uh, I spoke to your mom, and I know how old you are, and you can't do this. you got to go back to school. I said, I don't want to go back to school. This, this is what I want to do. You know right. what I mean? He says, no, nah, you got to do it. You could still do shows with me, but you got to go back to school. So I went back to school but continued to play with him. And he would actually fly me into different shows, believe it or not. Wow. um, Since uh, a lot of the teachers were fans of those kind of bands, Gary U.S. Bonds, Chuck Berry, and all these guys, you know, they they were cool with it. So I'd leave on a Thursday and we'd go do weekends because he played mostly weekends. Mm -hmm. He'd do Friday, Saturday, or Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So we did everything. We did Vegas. We did Playboy clubs. And we did the Dick Clark circuit. Yeah. You know, and there was that was a big deal at the time. There was the whole Dick Clark circuit. He used to put all these oldies shows together right. and played Madison Square Garden, Nassau Coliseum, and it'd be everybody, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, the yep. posters, I mean, everybody you can imagine. And a lot of times these bands, Chuck Berry a few times would not have a band with him or Bo Diddley wouldn't. And then Gary would just tell me, listen, boo, are you doing Chuck tonight? You're doing Bo Diddley tonight? So you would have to learn that, that band's... Uh, hits. It, it was really casual. I mean, Bo Diddley's stuff was pretty easy. He tuned like an opening. Well, it's, it's pretty much the same song. Junk, 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 That's right. So, you know, you'd, do a little, you'd get together with them a little before. They'd tell you what they're doing. Or sometimes he'd let you know a couple of days before. I'd have the songs together, and I'd just call out chords to the rest of the band. And we would just do it. And you got pretty good at it. It was a great education as a kid you know, for, to play music because everything was so spontaneous and right there and you'd just be, people would be watching your hands and you just kind of go through the motions and it was a great experience. You didn't have time to stare at your feet. You you were cooking from one, two, three, bang. That's right. That's it. We were going. So it was great. So it was like a, a pretty interesting childhood, you know, and um, yeah, so I got to travel around the U.S. and and basically go all over, over and play with these guys. It was fantastic. Now, when you were in high school, you know, you're, like you said, you're listening to Led Zeppelin, Kiss, and all this stuff, and you, you're, you're Haitian. And, uh, you know, did you get anything as far as, like, people looking at you, you know, going, what's a black guy listening to Kiss for? What's a black guy listening to Led Zeppelin for? Because, like, in, back in the 60s and early 70s, 
it was a much more diverse musical scene. I mean, you would listen, literally you'd have the Monkees and Jimi Hendrix on the same station. Yes, that's right. It was diverse. Um, you know, I since I was pretty much the only black kid out there, uh-huh. there wasn't, we didn't have that thing where you're black, you should be listening to, you know, just R&B or you should be listening to that. I loved the Motown at the same time, you know. Right. Um, I, I just liked that because my dad was a pretty... Now I realize it many years later, he was a connoisseur of music because he actually introduced me to Zeppelin and, and bands that I wouldn't even imagine he would like. And when it, now he's passed away and gone, and I look back, and every band that he was into, and he'd have me come down and say, you got to listen to this, from Janis Joplin to Led Zeppelin to, I mean, he, he'd listen to ABBA, then he'd go to, you know, Isaac Stern, and he, he uh-huh. was so diversified, but pretty much everybody who he dug back then ended up being legendary. Right, <laughs> you know? right. So, it's pretty uh interesting about that. But as far as the – nobody really gave me a hard time because that's all they listened to, and I kind of melted into what was going on out there. So it just was the norm. You know what I mean? That's what everybody was listening to. So then walk me through this. How does a Haitian kid who's raised on rock and roll, Motown, Led Zeppelin, Kiss – wind up shaving his head, getting a mohawk, and being in one of the biggest punk bands of all time? <laughs> you know, I ask myself that same question sometimes, and you say to yourself, it must have been a lot of ambition and drive, and it's funny when you're really young how when you really want something, you you don't see any barriers. You just go, right. you know, and it's... um. You know, it's funny, when you get older, you start looking at, well, if I do that, then that might not happen, and that might not happen. You start second-guessing everything. But, right. You know, People are worried that, about being pigeonholed or exactly. whatever. But it turned out that um, after I did this whole thing of playing with the band, et cetera, school, then I finally said, and my parents, you know, kicked me out of the house pretty young. So already at 14, 15, about, I was out of the house, and I was living with a guitar player that was in my band. I had a whole little business going. I had a truck and a PA system and the whole thing, you know, already going. And I was playing local gigs and doing all kinds of stuff and going to school. Um, so I continued to do all of that stuff. And then finally I moved out to the city, first New Jersey, actually for a bit. I joined the local band out there and I realized that wasn't the scene. And then I moved into the city and um, started getting into the whole CBGB's Max's Kansas City vibe I thought it was really cool. Um, and then I played with one band called NYN as a singer just for a few gigs. Uh-huh. Then I saw an ad for the Plasmatics. They were just starting to happen. It was just starting to make some noise down there, and they were looking for a bass player. So I auditioned. Um, I said, this is really great. This is a really cool band. I love the way they looked. And I just, you know, I, I was always a rebel because I was always different than everybody else. So I always believed in doing what I felt, and the Plasma Ice was a perfect vehicle for that. So they called me one day, and they said, okay, you're, you're it. If you want the gig, it's yours. You're not going to make any money for X amount of time, but we believe that we're going to be one of the biggest bands you know, out, out here, and that's what the manager told me. But mm-hmm. literally, you're not going to see one penny, nothing for like a year. Wow. <laughs> and so I was like, in the military or something. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, and he says, we work it. So I said, okay, and I joined the band, and... You know, started going to rehearsals. Uh, you know, it was tough, really tough at the beginning with the plasmatics. I mean, it's like, you know, I was living in some flea bag hotel on Route 3 in New Jersey. I could barely had money to eat. Meanwhile, we were starting to do shows, but we weren't making any money. We were fighting with the road crew of who gets to drive in the truck or in this green van that had no AC as we were driving through the Midwest in the middle of the winter. <laughs> and it was, and we suffered for a while, but then the band just got bigger and bigger, and then, lo and behold, you know, next thing you know, we made some noise. Wow. Now, you know, you, you're not making money, but then you guys are on, what, Fridays, and you guys are on the Tomorrow Show, and you guys are on all these things. At, at what point are you going, how come I'm not making any money? Well, this happened a little bit later, you know. So at the beginning, we weren't quite there yet. That's when the band started having more success, to be honest with you. And mm-hmm. um, and that's when things started to happen. But the Mohawk came in very right at the beginning, by the way. I missed that part. You know? Okay. <laughs> the Mohawk, yeah, I was wondering when you got the Mohawk, if that was part of the audition for the Plasmatic. No, put- no. It was, we all kind of, I saw that everybody was doing their own thing. And, and I said, wow, this is a great 
vehicle to be able to be whoever you want to be and do whatever you want to do. So, you know, Richie had a blue mohawk and he had his tutu and everything he had going. Wendy really had just long hair at that point. Uh-huh. I got the blonde mohawk and the white suit and the glasses and the whole trip. Uh-huh. And everybody had their own image. And it was, I've always liked that where, you know, which is, well, there you go, kiss, you know, where people, yeah. you have different identities and, you know, everybody's got his own kind of role it's like almost being an actor in a film you know yeah you know so it was a a a great thing to do that so we did that for a while we toured and then things opened up and we started making some money i mean nothing major but um and then the band just got bigger and bigger from there um and then we played fridays and all the other shows and man actually got fairly big we were we were doing like 10 nights at the whiskey a go-go and and the manager always had some interesting ways of doing things. He never believed in doing things traditionally, like go play the Coliseum. He would prefer to do, you know, five nights at Perkins Palace, then go do four nights at Santa Monica, Santa Monica Civic, and then go do another ten nights at Whiskey Gogo, where you ended up drawing over a hundred thousand people. But it created a an buzz, buzz and vibe in the town because the band would end up spending two weeks or three weeks in this area. Right. Instead of just coming in, oh, the stones were here, they're gone. Right. It was interesting. He was a, he was a conceptual artist, so he had definitely some interesting ideas when it came to doing things, you know. We're gonna we're gonna move ahead a little bit, and we're going to go to the creatures on the, of the night tour. And at this point, you had been, uh, you guys were more infamous than famous, I would say, the Plasmatics, right? Right, but, you know, I had actually left the band by that point. Oh, you did? I left the band right before Creatures of the Night. But Paul and I were still working and doing other things for Kiss, but I had just left the band to stop pursuing my solo record. Okay, well then, let's, let's skip that then. Uh, <laughs> <All right. laughs> okay, so, so you're, you're, you're more infamous than famous at this point. You're, you're, uh, you're, you're making TV appearances, and at some point, uh, you run into David Lee Roth and the guys from Van Halen. Can you tell us that little story? Ah, how'd you know that? <laughs> I know everything. I'm the king of swing. <laughs> that's funny. That's too funny. Well, actually, that's right. That was in L.A. It was, um, I was having, starting to have some trouble with the band. Not with the band. The band and I were always got along great. Well, and I, I was having some troubles with the manager. Uh-huh. Uh, just because I just thought that he was a little too controlling and, and I wasn't really happy with the way certain things were going, including what we were making for what we were making. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right. Uh, you know, and, um, and again, I was always pretty rebellious and I always was somebody who spoke out where a lot of other guys didn't want to say anything and they just wanted to go with the flow. Right. But so David Lee Roth's bodyguard was out there at Santa Monica Civic and he came in, I guess came to the sides. Well, he said, listen, the guys from Van Halen are here and they'd like to come, to, you know, get into the show. I was a fan of Van Halen at that point already. Everybody <laughs> I, was. That People don't realize the impact of that first album. Plus, you were down. You, you were there in L.A. and it was it was just exploding. It was exploding. That you really got me was just fantastic. It was great. I believe that was the single at the time, and I was yeah. like, I loved the band, and I thought they were great. So I said, Yeah, bring them back, bring them back. And so I met David, met the band. Everybody was great. And then David and I started hanging out, and he said, Listen, man, let me take you out after the show. Let's let's you know, I'll show you a little bit of Sunset Strip. We'll go out to some clubs and blah blah blah. So um, I believe he had he had no Mercedes at the time. He was really into Mercedes, uh, those older classic Mercedes. Right. We got into that thing, and uh, he took me around, and he said, man, you guys must be doing fantastic. He says, all these nights, you know, you must be making a killing on merchandising, and, and wow, you know, we're not even doing this much merchandising, and we, we've got hotel room floors and blah, 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 and I'm like, I start realizing, you know, I was a kid still, remember. Uh-huh. And I'm like, wait a minute, we don't have any hotel room floors. Something's wrong here. He said, you don't know what's going on with the merchandising? Detailed? You know, you, you don't, you're not up on it? I said, not really. He said, um, you know what? Maybe this is not right. You should, maybe it's time for you to go on and do something else. He kind of had some kind of belief in me already. I don't know why, but he just, um, just felt that maybe you should move on. And believe it or not, I took it to his advice and started having some confrontation with the manager, and I ended up quitting the band. 
Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's, it's all kind of weird because it's all, again, kind of weirdly KISS-related because Gene helped Van Halen get started. That's right, yeah. And it all comes full circle. It's some weird karmic thing, some weird karmic KISS thing. That's so right. take me back to how you first went from being uh, this uh, fan of KISS as a teen to being in a band and some, somehow, some way. You get tapped on the shoulder and somebody says, hi, I'm a Kiss. Who was that person? And tell us that story. Okay. So this is probably, uh, this is a good history lesson for me. Um, this is probably right after I left the Plasmatics, right? I would imagine. Or was I still just towards the end of the band? Might, mm-hmm. I might have still been in the band. Right. Um, I was at a club. I think the club was Heartbreak in New York City. And it was kind of one of those clubs where everybody kind of hung out, all the actors and the musicians and art types. It was kind of the hang and models, right. you know, the whole thing. And um, I was just there, and all of a sudden, Paul walks over and says, Hey, I'm Paul Stanley of Kiss. You're Jean Bouvard from the Plasmatics. And I said, Yeah, yeah. And I was kind of surprised, you know, because I didn't recognize them because they were wearing makeup back then. And, you know, so. When he first came up, I didn't recognize him until, of course, he said who he was. And then we just, you know, hit it off. We started talking and hanging out and doing this. And he said, let's get together. And then after that, we ended up just being friends for a while. We actually didn't do any writing for, it could be a year or two. Now, keep in mind, it was probably a big thrill to meet Gary U.S. Bond and Chuck Berry and so on and so forth. But you didn't have their posters on your wall. That's right. So now Paul Stanley walks up to you and says, Hi, I'm Paul Stanley of KISS. There's two things that would have freaked me out. A, that he knew who you were. Because, you know, you just don't think of the 70s rock stars or hard rock stars even really caring about what punk was or what was going on. If anything, they thought it was a passing fad. I would imagine most of them, you know, because you're wrapped up in your scene. You know what I mean? Whatever it is. So it, you had to be kind of surprised that they knew not only uh, that you were with the Plasmatics, but that you were the bass player of the Plasmatics, because it seemed like almost all the press zeroed right in on Wendy. Well, not at the time. You know, to be honest with you, this is something that the press, that the manager kind of engineered later on in the career. But at the very beginning of the Plasmatics, when we had the most impact, the band was kind of known as a novelty. So the band was really well-known. Because we were in all, we weren't in music press only. We were like in all the press. So it was like one of those things where every time you'd come to town, we'd have police trying to arrest us. So you'd end up in, in, you know, on the cover of the local paper. Oh no, the plasmatics are coming to town. They've gotten busted. So there was, it was a real interesting phenomenon that a lot of people that ordinarily, that weren't even into music knew about the plasmatics. Right. You know, because we were in all the press and we were like, you know, eyewitness news commercial. And so it was, you'd have all kinds of people just wanting to come to the show, not because they were music fans, but just to see who's what the hell was going on. What's going to happen? Who's going to get, you know, blown up? Get, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, this is something we got to go see. So it was, and at that point, we were all pretty famous because of the images and we were always, always in, in the press. And then later on, it kind of went to another thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was impressed, you know. I was a, I was two things, you know. I was a young, stuck-up kid, <laughs> which happens at times, mm-hmm. you know, that you, to a certain extent, or I'm not going to say stuck-up, I'd say pride, you know, right. that you add to a certain extent. But at the same time, I was cocky. really... I was cocky. I was a little cocky, you know, um, just because I didn't want to feel like um, I was too impressed by anything or, or anything like that, you know. It's just one of those things that you... Right. Be, happens when you're a kid sometimes it's all part of being young and being successful and at the time you were generating huge buzz so you know but um yeah i was absolutely impressed when i met paul it was a fantastic thing and um yeah and i just loved just getting involved and hanging out and and then we actually realized we had just had a lot of things in common you know just um just personality wise uh you know clothes that we liked uh things we liked to do and and we just you know, sincerely just became friends and just spent a lot of time together. Always New Year's and, you know, at parties, each other's houses. And, you know, because outside of being a musician, there's a personal side. There's a lot of things that you go through that sometimes you just, you're not going to share with people. So sometimes right. you find people and 
And I found that with a lot of rock artists, you know, whether it be, you know, Paul or David Lee Roth or, you know, Rob Halford. And you know, I had interesting friends at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of, I guess we all gravitated to each other because we were all kind of outcasts in a way. Right. You know, and I was definitely the only black guy with the blonde mohawk. Exactly. Now, this is this this might sound weird, but I don't imagine you were the person that was like collecting the Kiss baseball cards and stuff like that. Uh, were you caught up in any of that? I mean, no, I wasn't. I, I wasn't. I've never really been like a real fan fan uh, of anything, pretty much. I think I've always been more just, um, how can I say, acknowledged or respected people for things that they would do. Like, so for Kiss, I would just look at it and say, wow, this is just incredible what they've accomplished. Wow. Those outfits. Wow. You know, so you were in that way, but I was never on, because I wasn't on that other side, if you know what I mean. Right. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, they were an influence on you as like, look at here at what someone else is doing. Uh, there's a, for everyone who's listening, there's a mad chihuahua, uh, running around the house. So anyway, uh, anyhow, uh, but, uh, you know, so, so basically from a very early age on, you didn't like stand in awe of music. You kind of got under the trunk and figured it out from, from working for Gary U.S. Boss or Chuck Berry or, you know, you, you kind of figured out how to make this happen early on. Whereas, like other people were hanging posters on their wall playing air guitar with a tennis racket, you were actually on stage with someone. Yeah, I guess so. And, you know, if I really think back, I'm not sure how exactly. It's not something that you engineered. It's just something that somehow just happened, you know. Right, Um, right, right. You you know what I mean? It's not like I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm going to go from, you know, point A to point I was, it wasn't that. It was just like somehow I ended up here. And some things didn't work. I mean, my first producer was a guy named Rob Parisi, you know, uh-huh. this is going, you know, who that, I don't know if you know that band, Wild Cherry, yes. play that funky music. Absolutely. You know? And I wouldn't listen to anything he said at the time, you know, because I thought I knew everything. And I remember going to my manager's office at that time. I was, that was still during the Gary U.S. Bonds days, you know. Uh-huh. And um, I remember going into my manager's office and he looked at me and he said, you see these platinum records on the wall? When you have one of these, you can open your mouth. Till then, shut up. Wow. And it's weird because, like, when you think of, like, if, if you were to start out the story again of David Lee Roth and you speaking and him, like, waking you up to the fact that you're not making any money, what are you doing? Uh, you know, a lot of people would be thinking two rock stars meet or, and they're talking about, like, their musical influences. David Lee Roth's talking about merchandising. He's not talking about, like, uh, can you play an augmented sea slith or something? You know what I mean? He's, he's, he's saying, hey, What's your cut of the deal? Because he's in the business. When you're in the on the business side of things, it's a different world than being on the fan side of things. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You do talk about that's right because people don't realize that you know it's not all glamour. You know, in in rock and roll and being an artist, there are a lot of things on the side. You got management problems. You've got this. It's deals. It's lawyers. It's you've got that aspect. And a lot of times when you're hanging out with other rock and rollers or other singers of bands or things like this you you talk about different things you know it's you know that's what ends up happening just what you just said you end up spending time talking about those other things and those challenges or complaining about the record company having you stuck in a deal or you know what i mean or Mm -hmm. things like that which might seem boring to fans but that's why fans don't get to hear about that stuff so if if i'm correct you're clubbing with paul for about a year uh, you guys are hanging out, this is doing things, and at some point one day Paul just says, hey, you want to try to write something, a guitar is introduced, and you guys start writing and working together. What was the first thing that happened? That was exactly it. We, um, I believe we were just hanging out at his apartment, and we just pulled In out. In L.A., correct? This was in New York. Okay, New York, okay. Yeah, we were in New York at the time. Um, and basically just pulled out a guitar, a couple guitars. We just sat on the couch and just started messing around and playing some riffs. And then boom. And then that's when it started. And then, and, first and, thing, and about when was this? What, what year? Oh God, let me see. So you got to look. When did Thrills in the Night come out? So you got to think it's, uh, 84. 80, 83, 84. 84. Thrills in the Night came out. So right. we must have done it. This must have started a year, a year before that, right? Because you got to okay. think that. After you write it, then it's got to be recorded, right. and then you 
They give another six months before that thing comes out. So, yeah. so, so then this is during the Animalize album is, is uh, right. going to be being worked on. That's right. And 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 this was the first track you guys worked on was Thrills in the Night or was it something? Yes, else? I believe that was. We might have messed around with some other ideas that might not have, that you know would not come out because you know before you actually come up with the one thing you mess around with certain things. But we were pretty much to the point if you didn't think that you had the song, it's not like we sat around and recorded a bunch of things and then okay, well that one's good. It was like we'd mess around with an idea, nah, that's not it. Okay, let's try this. Okay, nah, that's not it. Oh, this is good. Then we'd throw a little melody. We'd have a little four track sitting there. We'd play around with the melody a little bit, play around with the riff, and then we'd actually create this little demo on that infamous little four track, you know? Wow. And then from there, once the four track's done and we have a little vibe, you know, I'd play a little bass on it, we'd put some guitar, a couple of guitar tracks on it, we'd bounce it. <laughs> we had a whole little system going with this little four track. And we'd turn that four track into like 16 tracks. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, from there, We'd have like a little rough demo, and then we'd take a break, and we'd say, "Okay, well, we've got something." Um, and this this would be over, you know, a few days, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and then after that, we'd, you know, each live with the little cassette of what we had, and then we'd start working on lyrics. Hi, this is Bruce Kulick, and you're listening to Podcast. All right, here we go. Take two. Hi, this is Bruce Kulick, and you're listening to Podkiss, the best. Now, at this point, Kiss had been through uh, the loss of Peter Chris, Ace Fraley, and now Vinnie Vincent was not working out, so he was gone. And uh, the band was kind of like hungry to keep the momentum that they had from the Lick It Up album. Was there any objective in mind? Like, like did Paul say, I want to do this, that, or the other thing? Like, what was, what was the vibe in, in Paul's head, according to what you remember? We wanted it to be great. I mean, Paul was always very focused on what he wanted to do. Both of them. They were both very focused. As now, you know, of course, when you say both of them, we're talking about Gene and Paul. We're talking about Gene and Paul. That's right. But at the time, I was spending time with Paul, and then, you know, kind of got into the whole thing with Gene. But with Paul, he was very, he knew what he, it's like, it was very clear. It's a, the song has to be this. So when we were working on a song, it was very focused. It wasn't just like, hey, this is cool. All right, that's good enough. He was like, nah, it's not. I noticed he was very meticulous in the writing, you know, and everything. It's almost like, you know, some things I say about myself sometimes you have a needle in your head and you know when the thing hits, you know, the zero mark. And it's the same thing with him. He just was very clear what had to happen on the record and he needed X amount of songs that had to be great. And he was writing with some different people as well. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and when he felt that we had something, then he, he was confident that was it. So I think that he was just focused on despite what's going on and changes he had to make, he had to stay on track and go forward to keep things going as they need to go. Because then it was really, you know, it's a business. The fans were really important and the songs were really important. And he felt that there's certain things that were expected that he had to come up with. Uh, before we get into the Asylum album, we're going we're gonna to stick with the Animalizer, and I want to do a little bit about the recording process. You, you played on that album, correct? Yes. What all did you play on? Oh, brother. Now I, got, I almost <laughs> got to go back and read. I found out about things I played on. I didn't remember I played on it. <laughs> it happens. It happens. By reading the books. I mean, um, to tell you the truth, I've got, I should know this, but it's been such a long time. And to tell you the truth, the playing was an afterthought. It because was the that, song was the thing. Well, what I mean is that in those days, playing on a record, if I play it on a record, it's not something that's supposed to be out. You know, right. it's like, so it's not like I got like, no, I know. I played on so and so's record. I've got a credit. I'm, I played guitar on doors. It wasn't like that. It was like you played on the record, but you didn't play on the record. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was just like I happened to be in the studio and I played on on the songs, but nobody was ever supposed to know. Matter of fact, I don't think that it ever came out till you know some years later in some in a book that somebody told me, "Oh, you played on a record." I said, "I did." Next thing you know, I looked in the book and they said these were the songs Jean played on. You know. Wow. But, because it wasn't something that it was like you played on it and, you know. Well, a lot of bands, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, the Beatles went from being that cohesive unit to eventually, you know, Billy Preston would 
show up or Eric Clapton on a track or Paul would play drums on something or so on and so forth. So in that same way, uh, you know, there was that group unity that they always tried to promote until towards the end. So Kiss was trying to promote that group unity. But at what a lot of people don't realize is that there's Gene's style of doing things and there's Paul's style of doing things. For example, I get the feeling that Paul writes for the individual song, whereas Gene might come in with 30 different songs and try to pull something from that. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Their, their systems were a little bit different. That's right. Um, it's, yeah, that's what I mean, that um, Paul was very uh, specific about, it's either we have the song or, or we don't. Like whereas said. Gene, like, throws spaghetti at the wall to see if it's cooked. <laughs> I, I'm not going to say, I don't know if I'd say that. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> like, uh, let's see if it sticks kind of thing. But, uh, oh, but uh, so the songs, I mean, I, I believe it was Under the Gun. Get All You Can Take. That's right, Get All You Can Take. Thrills in the Night. And Thrills in the Night, of course. Yeah. And uh, there was, again, going to how Paul does, how Gene does, does thing. Basically, they were each in charge of their own recordings at that point. Uh, for example, if you had a Paul track, he was supervising that. That's right. They split the record up. Right. You know, and that's just the way they did it um, at the time. But for whatever reason, I, I, it made sense to me. I didn't question it in any way. I figured you got two guys who are partners in the band. Best way to do it is, you know, then that would eliminate conflicts and whatever you do, you're 50%, I do my 50% the way I want to do it. Nobody questions anything. It seems to make sense to me.
the same time. So I'm not sure if some of these are supposed to be pushed or not. You know what is supposed to be now, how did the rest of the band feel about that? Did you ever pick up any vibe or anything? I didn't. If you want to know the truth, I think that um, Gene, from what I saw, I mean, anytime I was in a studio, or most of the time, he he was there. When he needed to be there to do what he needed to do, he was there. Okay. So it wasn't like he was off and running and nobody could find him and, you know, what are we going to do? Or this record's not going to happen because you're off doing movies. At least that's not the vibe I got. Right. You know? Gene is a pretty energetic guy, <laughs> and he's one of his, who seems like he can multitask pretty well. Yeah, even even to this day, he seems to be able to have many irons in the fire. You see what I'm saying? The guy's Absolutely. running an entire television show, plus he's on tour, plus running another five businesses or whatever. And recording an album and this, that, and the other thing, you know. That's so. right. So it wasn't, um, I didn't see, personally, you know, we might get some different reactions from other people, but um, I didn't really see a big lapse because of his movie career in the progress. So so then when someone would say, well, then why was Gene playing bass on, you know, whatever track it was? If How come Gene wasn't there doing that? You know, um, not to put down his, his interest in the thing. I think, like you said, Gene was a little more casual about that. I don't think Gene is a muso-muso type of guy mm-hmm. who's like, you know, just like, you know, some of us just aren't, you know, th- right. that way. You kind of look at the big picture more than somebody who's like, you know, you spend your whole day thinking about what bass part you're going to play on this song. Right. You know, it's, it's an overall, it's all about, it's Kiss. Kiss is a much bigger picture. And and weren't there times when you would have laid down a bass track and they would come in and go, that sounds awesome, why mess with it? Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, so sometimes, for like, for Thrills in the Night, they'd be like uh you know, the demo we did at home already had the feel, you know, and you right. know how, you know, you heard about the thing of chasing demos, you know. Right. Once you have a little demo on there, it's, it's bad enough to have to reproduce the same part. Right. <laughs> like, exactly. Let alone trying to come up with new stuff. And, and, you, and you try to capture that certain magic that's in the demo because there's usually something that's sometimes very hard to find in when you take it from demo to actual finished track sometimes. Something can get lost. Believe me, I've, I've been down that road. Going, it's, into, it's it's very heartbreaking. It is. It's times you go into really expensive studios, spend all this money to try to capture the demo, and you end up flying in the stuff from your twelve track, which you which was recorded in your bedroom or in exactly. a bathroom hall, and it sounded better for whatever reason. That's right. That's yeah. right. Because wow. you can't get the same feeling. So I think that Gene pretty much. I mean, when we were in there, if I was playing something, or he'd say, "Well, you know, why don't you try something on this." I think he just, since he liked the way I played and thought I had an interesting feel. And, you know, sometimes as musicians, we actually like to get another take mm-hmm. our thing. You know what I mean? Right. And it, it's actually exciting. So I didn't, it, that's pretty much the way it was. It was just like, okay, play on that. Well, great sound. Sounds good, but boy, okay, that's that. Well, let's go with that. Well, on the Animalized album, also, weren't they under a little bit of a mind crunch that, isn't that one of the reasons that they broke into two different like teams? Like Gene was producing, Paul was producing, and they had Michael James Jackson supervising the drum recordings. Right. right. Uh, and uh, so it was kind of like, let's get this done, let's get back out on the road because that's where the money's at. Well, that could have been it, but it was um, definitely things were very efficient and moving very smoothly. You okay. know, I can remember that as far as like, okay, drums are being recorded from this time to this time. We're going to do the tracks and. <clears throat> Since Paul and I were hanging out a lot, you know, whether I was actually involved in the session or not, usually I'd be stopping into the studio or hanging around or, you know, whatever. And everything was always on schedule, moving, you know. They've always worked that way from mm-hmm. all the time that I've done anything with them. It's always been right on the money and quick. And, yes, like you said, they probably would split up into teams to be efficient and to make sure that everything gets done when it needs to get done. Now I'm going to ask you about what 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 Kiss was at that time. I'm going to ask you about the personnel of the band. Uh, what are your thoughts of Gene Simmons from that time? Uh, any any amusing anecdotes from the Animalized recording time or around that era? What can I say? What can I say? You know, Gene has always been. <laughs> I've known Gene for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. He was always a funny guy, kind of the same attitude. I mean, it's. Um, I didn't see him being very different. Then he is now. I've always known Gene to kind of be the same pretty much the whole time that I've I've known him. You know, he's just kind of a funny guy, a funny personality, 
hard personality, you know, uh, pretty tough when it comes to business. Mm-hmm. Doesn't take any shit, you know, and uh, can be ruthless at times, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was pretty much it. Um, How did you meet him? I believe I met him in the studio. I think, uh, I'm trying to think if it was in the studio that I met him with. I think it was in the studio that I met Gene. Paul just introduced me to Gene one day. Um, I'm trying to see if it was the studio or it was before that. Excuse my memory sometimes. You no, it's, it's fine. It's fine. We're going back a long, long, long way. I think it might have been the studio or at a party before that, either at Paul's house. Something tells me it was a party. I'm just, just not remember what happened first, but I, it might have been a party at Paul's house. Uh, Eric Carr, what are your thoughts on Eric Carr? I liked Eric. Eric was, uh, I thought Eric was a sweet guy. We just, um, I didn't know him really, really well. Because <laughs> the way I knew these guys was mostly from just seeing them in, either at rehearsals. Because remember, before we went in and recorded anything, we'd have pre-production rehearsal. Can you give us a little bit more about that? Well, for example, you'd have um, kind of a, an older way of recording that a lot of people did is that you'd actually go in and and do a rehearsal and do some pre-production rehearsal to kind of go through the songs before going into recording. Now, see, a, a lot of people don't really think about something like this. So so let's say, for example, Thrills in the Night. Before that was ever actually recorded in a studio, the band learned it. It wasn't something that was learned and piecemealed together. You, they all went and learned it together, correct? Yes, yes, yes. From what I remember, that's how we did. That's how it was done. Same thing with the Ramones. You'd go and in probably and someone was rolling tape, and then they'd listen back to, you know, just standard stuff like we all have done. Yeah, just to see how the band plays it, right. how's it going to sound. You know, I know it's, it's a whole different world now. There's no such thing. I mean. Now right, everybody right. goes in and starts doing things piece by piece, bar by bar. Right. <laughs> but it loses so much. Yeah, that's right. It really does lose so much. Could you imagine the Motown music if it were done like that? The way it is now you're talking about? Yeah, because the, the thing about music, and you know, this has nothing to do with Kiss per se or anything, but like when I when I listen to like the Motown music mm-hmm. or, or Ringo on the Beatles, I hear imperfections that are perfections. That's right. That's you right. actually hear human heartbeats in the rhythm. That's right. And when you take things down to zeros and ones, and something gets lost. That's true. That's true. Um, I feel that sometimes that takes the personality out, the way we record these days. That's completely gone. And it, it makes everybody lazier, too, just in general. You know, just, Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. vocals and everything else. We used to actually do full takes, you know, and and choose between one out of four takes. Uh-huh. <laughs> now it's rare. Well, when you think about it, like you listen to an Elvis Presley recording or a little Ridger recording, that was one of three. And, right. it, and that was lightning captured in a jar. Yep. Get right. out of the way. Here it comes. Mm-hmm. And it's just amazing to think about that. But uh, let's let's go back to Mark St. John, uh, whose real name was Mark Norton. What did you think of him as a guitar player and as a member of KISS? I thought he was really good. I thought he was a great guitar player. Um, and he was just also a nice guy. You know, I would see these guys and meet them either, like I said, either in rehearsals or I'd see them at the studio because they'd be there. There were always little get-togethers and stuff that would happen around that time and usually they'd show up and um, he always just seemed like a nice guy, cool, fine. You know, I didn't spend a lot of time with him alone, uh-huh. you know, but he, he was, seemed like he was cool. He was just a cool guy. Was there ever a moment when you were either in a car with Paul or at a party or you're just sitting around and you're going, dude, I used to have your posters on my wall. Was there ever that moment? Yeah, I've, I've said that. You did they, did he razz you about it? Because, see, I would probably razz you. You know, I, I'd be like, well, do you want me to sign your lunchbox? Or, you know what I'm saying? No, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think the relationship was different. So I might have mentioned it, like, as Joe, but that wasn't kind of the relationship. It was more like, you know, two guys in different two bands. Two peers. Exactly. There was more of that kind of a relationship, you know, um, is how he looked at it and I looked at it and, it was just that way. But, you know, you always have in the back of your mind that, yes, you used to have their posters on, on your wall. But it wasn't like I walked around feeling like, oh, I can't believe I'm, you know, I'm having dinner. See, you know I, what I mean? It, even now talking to you, it's one of those pinch me kind of moments as weird as this is going to sound. 
but I've seen your names on Kiss albums, and you got to realize when when I tell you this, it's it's not an insult to the people listening. The people that listening to this are the biggest Kiss geeks alive. Okay, we follow about everything. Okay. Yeah, you know, uh, we we love this band, and it goes it goes way beyond the music. Uh, to me, being a Kiss fan has something to do with attitude and. Whether Kiss ever intended to do this or not, they've instilled in me in like you can do it kind of an attitude and that your life is what you make it. And, you know, whether it's get all you can take, like for example in the song, you know, it's, it's just something that's always kind of followed me. And as I've gotten older, I mean, you know, we've all been through divorces and job changes, moving and death and stuff like that. Kiss still gives me hope as weird as it sounds, uh, for you know, and and, I'm, I, and I hope I'm not boring you with this. But, no, no, I hear you. It's it's just it's just really a neat thing to have to, to be a fan of, and it's it's cool because your name's been associated with it uh, time and time again. So it's it's just kind of cool to have you on the show, and oh, uh, I hope you, you appreciate it. And and Absolutely. I want I want you to know I appreciate you being here. No, but, I uh, you do. Thank you. Um, but it, you know, so it's it's just that like wow. To me, I I can't see in your life how you haven't had a million of those pinch me moments, whether it be Chuck Berry, Gary S. Bonds. Well, I have, I have, tenders, I have definitely, you know. I I definitely have had. And then what ends up happening is that it kind of changes because they treat you as a peer, and it kind of the relationship changes a little bit, even though. I mean, there's no doubt you have those pinch me moments because, I mean, mm-hmm. let's face it, you know, how fortunate I've been, like I said, growing up on Long Island, little kid, probably my parents, and nobody would ever think that one day, who would ever think you'd be writing songs with the, you know, the guys on the poster on your wall or that right, right. any of this stuff would have happened. But what ends up happening with these relationships is it starts that way, and the next thing you know, like somebody like Paul, you know, took me in as as like a peer, you know, and mm-hmm. shows you a certain respect and, you know, starts to give you advice and starts to tell you well, you should be doing this or you should be doing that or, you know, starts to write songs for your record and starts to do all these things. And then you realize that, you know, this is kind of a peer, maybe a peer who's had a lot more success, you know. Right. But nevertheless, it's, it's still a peer that's, uh, you know, and we're kind of all in the same game in one way of being on one side of being artists that are, there to entertain people and to give people a certain feeling and then you end up feeling like you're part of a team it's different
Well, that was part one of our interview with Mr. John Beauvoir. Within the next two weeks or so, you will get part two of that interview. And if you'd like to get those five free tracks, you can go to www.pledgemusic.com forward slash widgets forward slash 4188. We'll put that link in our show notes where you can sign in and give them your email and then you can download. So it's very simple and you get five great tracks. So thank you, John. And part two of that interview will be coming up soon. So Gary. And that is our show. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check us out on the web at www.podcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on iTunes. If you'd like to contact the podcast, please drop us a line at podcast at gmail.com. Big thanks to Julian and everyone at kissfaq.com. They've got great information there and a terrific message board, too. Thanks also to Keith LaRue and everyone else at Kiss Online for their great work representing the hottest band in the land. And as always, a big thanks to Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Ace Fraley, Peter Chris, Vinnie Vincent, Bruce Kulick, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and the memory of the late great Eric Carr, and the late great Mark St. John. You are KISS, and we are your army. Podcast is created by the KISS Army for the KISS Army, and it is available for free as an internet download. If you like what you hear on our show, go buy it and support the people who made it. Podcast is not affiliated with KISS or any of its members past or present. On behalf of myself, Ken, and the whole rest of the Podcast crew, thank you for listening to Podcast, the KISS fanzine for your ears. On your own? Going Uh, down the only road you've ever known? Yes, okay. So here we go. Gene Gene and the Spiders from Mars. Yes, so here we go. Welcome to another show. Oh, 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 okay. I'm like, we're introing the show and that's the thing? Other thing. It literally sounds like we're sitting in the same room. Yeah, awesome. What so, are we talking? What what what, uh, what other? I mean, is that basically the whole shebang? By the way, yeah, we're done. Dude, that's just great. This, right. This is a lot of. So content. if you get yours done, hopefully this done. weekend. I can. I uh, I want to give a shameless plug. Shameless to, plug alert. Yeah, to to a good friend of mine who has a new podcast. I, I uh, I'm really impressed with this podcast. And who's that? It's this guy. Oh, you know him and love him. It's by Ken Mills. Ken Mills, would it be about another rock band? It would be about another rock band. Which one? Cheap Trick. Would Matt Porter and Andrew Scambetti be part of the regular staff? I believe they are, yes. Will Gary Schaller ever make an appearance? I believe I will, yes. Thank God. Okay. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm stoked about this podcast. I think it's great that, you, that you're doing this because as, a, as, a, as someone who never really got into Cheap Trick but loves everything I've heard by Cheap Trick and, and really should be in a cheap trick. I'm stoked to get into cheap trick because of this podcast. So thank you for doing that. Well, you are welcome, I think, and thank you for putting up with it. So No, um, I mean, man, it's <clears throat> awesome. I'll tell you what, dude, here's the cool thing about it. I still like when people write to us and they say, you know, I never really cared about the elder until I listened to the podcast episode and then I gave it a, a listen with fresh ears and mm-hmm. I was I, like that's how I feel about, you know, listening to this cheap trick podcast because I know you guys I trust your tastes, and I'm stoked to get into it. And, you know, after seven years of talking about KISS, which there's a lot of KISS podcasts out there, but we've been going for seven years, so been there, done that, bought the T-shirt several times. I've even sold the T-shirt. But, yeah. uh, you know, we, we, we deserve the chance to spread our wings and do some other things. And so when's the Pink Floyd cast going to come out? You know, I'm still working on the AHA podcast. I mean, uh-huh. how many how many times can you talk about the sun always shines on TV and Living a Boy's Adventure Tale and Hunting High and Low mm-hmm. and all the all the great AHA songs. The you know? um, Pod AHA cast? That's right. Pod. It's the Pod cast. Pod cast. Every time I start to record it, I get grabbed into the computer and turn into a, a sketchy cartoon. Will take on me. Yeah, well, there you go. Hey, mm-hmm. t- tell us how we can listen to this great Cheap Trick podcast. Well, it, oddly enough, you probably already know it if you subscribe through iTunes. It comes right through on the ki- podcast uh feed so no must no fuss if you don't like it delete it if you like it let us know oh wait no no we also have we're, our own we're, we're iTunes page too. if we don't like it we're gonna complain well yeah that's true <laughs> all right well anyway thanks for uh, putting up with our indulgences or whatever right on. i love that dog oh well that makes one of us oh dude he's such an annoying piece of shit is that is that the bruce kulik makeup character that's right. That's 
right? The, 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 we've got the demon, the the spaceman, and I think the you can hear me. and the Maltese. The Maltese Barker. Unbelievable. Uh, like, I got, and, and I got to wait. I have to kill a dog. Hold on a second. Okay. Ah, oh. oh, dude, he's such an annoying piece of shit. 